please turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 8. As you're turning there, just encourage you, invite you again to join us this evening as we'll be at uh, Camp Good News and we'll be looking at uh, uh, some similar things we're looking at this morning. We'll be looking at the book of Deuteronomy and talking about how to, to live in the land and how to respond rightly to God's truth. Luke chapter 8, we'll also be having a, uh, a business meeting following the, the service and talking about the different things going on in our church and just kind of a short meeting uh, to kind of get up to speed on a couple things and to vote in some members, so just kind of a, a great time of, of fellowshipping this evening at uh, Camp Good News. Well, if you stand with me this morning as we look at Luke chapter 8, looking at verses 16 through 21 together this morning, remember we're continuing this idea of hearing the word of God and how to respond rightly to it. Jesus has just finished the parable of the sower. In fact, I'm going to read verse 15 as well to kind of give us a little bit more of the context. And Jesus says this, As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar, puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Take care, then, how you hear. For to one, the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Then his mother and his brothers came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. May God encourage us and strengthen us through his word this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the ability that we have to, to know it and then to do it. We pray that you would help us this morning as we think about living out the doctrine that you've entrusted to us. Give us the grace to do so, the ability to do so through your spirit. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Kent Hughes, in his commentary on the book of Hebrews, uh, relates a story from Herman Melville's White Jacket, a novel about a sailor on a ship. And uh, Hughes does a great job summarizing this, this segment of the novel. And I, I want to read to you what Hughes writes. He says, in the novel White Jacket, Melville has one of the ship's sailors become desperately ill with severe ab abdominal pain. The ship's surgeon, Dr. Cuticle, waxes enthusiastically about the possibility of a real case to treat, one that challenges his ability. Appendicitis is the happy diagnosis, and Dr. Cuticle recruits some other sailors to serve as his attendants. The, the poor sailor is laid out on the table, and the doctor goes to work with skillful enthusiasm. His incisions are precise, and while removing the diseased appendix, he proudly points out interesting anatomical details to his sailor helpers who have never before seen the inside of another human being. He is completely absorbed in his work and obviously a skillful professional. It is an impressive performance, a dazzling display of his knowledge and ability, but the sailors, without exception, are not impressed, but are rather appalled. Why? Their poor friend 
lying on the table, now receiving his last stitch, has long been dead. Dr. Cuticle had not even noticed. Cold Dr. Cuticle with ice water in his veins was insensitive and void of empathy. If you find yourself as a sailor on a ship with appendicitis, it's nice to have a surgeon on board. It's very nice to have a knowledgeable surgeon on board, one who has the the knowledge of of what to do and and has skills and, and knows the human anatomy. But equally important is to have a surgeon who knows why he has that knowledge in the first place. A surgeon who rightly understands that the purpose of that knowledge is not simply to display his knowledge for others to see, but to exercise that knowledge in the benefit of other people, specifically, in your case, you. Similarly, with doctrine, with a knowledge of who God is, it's important for us as believers to remember not just the doctrine itself, but why God has entrusted doctrine to us. Why do we know things about God? We know things about God, not just to know things, but to know things and do things. Doctrine in the life of the believer exists so that we can know God and live out that doctrine. Doctrine exists so that we can know it and live it. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look at Luke chapter 8 and complete this long section that we've been looking at, verses 1 through 21 of Luke chapter 8. Remember, we began by looking at the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, we see four different responses to God's truth. We saw one heart that's very hardened to God's truth, the heart that's on the, that re- is represented by the soil on the path. This heart is a, a hardened heart, and the enemy is able to take advantage of that to r- remove God's word from that heart. The second heart that we looked at was the heart that's represented by the rocky soil. Uh, this heart is a heart on which the word of God falls, but in a time of testing, that that word of God doesn't take root and the person withers, the the heart kind of falls away. The third soil that we looked at was the soil that represented a heart that could be choked out by the cares and riches of the world. And then the last soil that we looked at was in verse 15. We looked at this last week, and this is the soil that represents the good heart. It's good soil, and it's in this soil that the word of God falls and then it takes root. It bears fruit. This heart holds fast God's word with endurance and bears fruit with perseverance. We looked at that last week. Verses 16 through 21 continue this theme of how to respond rightly to God's truth, how to hear God's word rightly. And in verses 16 through 21, we see some practical implications of what doctrine, what teaching about God's, God and his word, what sort of a practical effect that should have in one's life. We see that doctrine doesn't just exist for knowledge's sake, but doctrine, teaching about God, exists to be lived out in one's life. There are many wrong responses that we can have to doctrine, right? One response that believers sometimes can struggle with when it comes to teaching about God, when it comes to doctrine, one wrong response is to undervalue it. Instead of saying, okay, God has given me knowledge about who he is and his word, I'm going to go to his word, I'm going to study, and I'm going to diligently try to understand it and and formulate truths about God based upon his word and, and be able to articulate who he is, we can undervalue and say, you know what, doctrine isn't that important. When I was in seminary one time, I was 
uh, studying the book of Ephesians, and a person saw me as I was studying the book of Ephesians. I was, I was trying to, to lay out an outline of the book of Ephesians, and I was, spending, you know, I was just kind of really struggling with some parts of it. And this person said to me, look, why are you doing that? You have study Bibles, right? <laughs> I said, no, this is, this is, I need to be able to do this. I need to be able to study God's word and understand what it says, not because this is what someone else said, but because I have, based upon my understanding of God's word, have come to these conclusions. Another way that we can undervalue God's word is we can kind of uh, fear to, to talk about God's word. I was talking with some pastors recently about our, our sermons, and uh, I talked about, you know, about how long we, we, we talk about God's word here, how long our sermons are, and I said, you know, th- they were talking about how long theirs were. I said, well, we go about 45 minutes, and they, now, Mike would dispute that. Uh, the nursery workers might dispute that. 45 minutes-ish, and uh, they said, that's, that's astonishing. They said, there's, there's no way you're going to be able to grow a church if you uh, spend that long talking about God's word. There's a fear of it. I said, look, I'm not just relying upon my preaching ability, but my dashing good looks <laughs> and our children's ministry. Um, you see what I'm saying? There's a fear of doctrine, an undervaluing of how important it is in the life of the believer. And I, I believe, frankly, that there is a, a hunger on the part of believers for God's word that uh, desires to, to know more and more of it in, in the heart of the, the, the good soil, the heart that's represented by the good soil. So one way that we respond wrongly to God's word, God's doctrine, is by undervaluing it. Another way that we respond, respond wrongly to God's word is being uh, lacking confidence in our ability to understand it. Lacking confidence in our ability to understand it. We live in a postmodern world, and, and postmodernism has been defined by some as a, a lack of belief that we can attain meaning and understanding. And so sometimes people say, yeah, I can come to God's word, and I'll come to one conclusion, you'll come to one conclusion, why even bother? I can't really understand God, and I can't really understand the written word, and God's word says differently. No, you, you can't understand me, and you can understand me through my revelation to you. Another wrong way that we handle doctrine is by becoming very arrogant. By becoming very arrogant. And, and frankly, this is something that perhaps a church like ours needs to be very careful of. We become arrogant, first of all, as we think that we're the people who have articulated God's word rightly and, and everyone else has it wrong, and, and we've got this great doctrinal statement and we've been able to articulate God's truth perfectly. And we sometimes, instead of even focusing on God's word, we begin focusing on our doctrinal statements and our statements of faith. And, and all those things are wonderful and have a place in the Christian life, but our object in doctrinal statements and confessions and statements of faith throughout church history has been to point people to an understanding of God's word. Or we become arrogant in how much we understand about God. You know, we have uh, the book of Habakkuk memorized, and we can say the, the Old Testament, uh, including the minor prophets, from beginning to end. And, and we, we become very arrogant in how much we know. 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Paul talks about this, how knowledge puffs up. It, it makes arrogant. A danger, as we, as we think about doctrine, is that instead of us living it out, it would cause us to become very arrogant and, and puffed up in our understanding of truth. That's not why God entrusted his revelation to us. Our goal is not to be the the smartest kid on the block when it comes to being able to to talk about the Christian faith. Our goal in doctrine is to know God and live out that knowledge in our lives. That's why God has entrusted doctrine to us. That we would know it and live it. Well, let's look at the text together. 
And we're going to look at four truths about how to handle doctrine. Four truths about how to rightly handle doctrine, truth about God. The first truth is this. Know and be convinced of the truth. Know and be convinced of the truth. Look at the context here in verse 15. Remember, we're talking about the heart that's represented by the good soil. And remember last week we said, Jesus said, as for that in the good soil, the heart's represented by the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. A person needs to know and be convinced of the truth before they have the ability to live it out. Whenever we began doing the orphan care Bible study several years ago, we had a little, a little booklet that we used, and it was encouraging people to get involved in ministry, and there were some very good aspects of the book. But as I began to, to read through it, one of the things that really concerned me about it, as, in fact, as we began using it in small groups, is that it was kind of encouraging people to go out there and start doing things without first giving them a basis for why they should be doing those things, an understanding of the purpose of their life an understanding of God's purpose for their life and, and the purpose of, of suffering and difficulty and all those things that I believe a person needed to know before they engaged in caring for the orphan weren't there in that study. It was simply just go out and, and do. Reminded me of this story that I read with my, with my kids sometimes. It's called uh, The Bike Lesson by uh, Stan and Jan Berenstain, one of the Berenstain Bears books. Maybe some of you guys have read it. It's an older one. But in the, in the book, this little bear gets a bike from his dad. And he says, Dad, can I ride it? Can I ride it now, please? And his dad says this. He says, not yet, not yet, not yet, small bear. First come the lessons, then the fun. How to get on is lesson one, okay? That phrase was used at me many times as I grew up. Not yet, not yet, not yet, small bear. What do we want to do in the Christian life? We want to go out and, and do things. We want to go out and, and serve God. Careful, not yet, not yet, not yet, small bears. <laughs> First comes the lessons, then the fun. First, we need to understand God's truth before we can go out and live it. Jesus says here these people need to, first of all, hear the word and hold fast to it. Remember last week, we looked at this idea of holding fast. We looked at several texts that use this phrase, hold fast, as a description of, of faith. True, genuine faith is a faith that hears a message and, and holds fast to the truth of it. For example, we'll go through all the texts we looked at last week, but let me go into a little bit more detail into one that we did, 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, you can turn there if you'd like. This is a, a great passage to, to know and, and consider, 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's reminding them of the gospel, the most important message that a person can understand, the most important doctrine that we possess. And Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, this is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, of the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. The idea, that, and then he talks about the gospel. I delivered to you as a first importance. This was the highest priority of all the things I could have taught you. This was number one. I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance to the scriptures. Paul said, the first message that I delivered to you was the most important, the message about Jesus Christ dying for your sins according to the scripture and being raised from the dead. And you are saved if you hold fast to that message, if you believe it to be true and hold fast to it, continue in that belief. And the true believer, the person who truly holds on to that message by faith, 
is the person who will continue to hold on to that message by faith. Know and be convinced of the truth, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and that's what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 8 as well. Know and be convinced of the truth. This isn't just blind acceptance of any fact. There's a testing, an understanding of that truth. For example, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, Paul says, test everything and then hold fast to that which is good. Test everything, hold fast to that which is good. The problem in our postmodern culture is that we test everything and hold fast to nothing. Test everything, hold fast to the gospel, to that which is good. Our postmodern culture lacks a belief that understanding and knowledge and being convinced of the truth is possible. And without solid doctrine, of course, we stand in danger of practicing idolatry, of worshiping a God that's just in our own fashioning. Brian McLaren wrote a book called Generous Orthodoxy, and in the book he identifies, I believe, a, a real problem. Listen to what McLaren writes. He says, and, and you, you kind of need to uh, pay careful attention here. McLaren's a, a deep thinker, so kind of listen real carefully to what he's saying. He says, many have always and everywhere assumed that orthodoxy, and orthodoxy he defines as right thinking and opinion about the gospel. Orthodoxy, right thinking and opinion about the gospel. Many have assumed that orthodoxy, right thinking and opinion about the gospel, and orthopraxy, right practice of the gospel, so knowledge and doing, many have assumed that orthodoxy and orthopraxy could and should be separated so that one could be at least proud of getting an A in orthodoxy even when one earned a D in orthopraxy. You see what he's saying? We've separated knowing things from doing things. And even if we don't do everything, we can at least be proud that we know things, right? He says there's this chasm that exists between the two, and it's a problem. And I believe that McLaren is absolutely right as he identifies the problem. It is a danger in our culture when you can say, I know a lot of things about God, but I don't do a lot of things that God tells me to do. There's a problem there. You say, I can articulate the doctrine of the Trinity, but I have a terrible relationship with my children. I don't shepherd them. I have a, a wonderful understanding of the gospel message, but I, I fight with my siblings all the time. I can articulate to you the doctrine of predestination, and yet uh, I don't love my wife, okay? There's a problem if a person says, I have great knowledge, but not practice. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy were not meant to be separated from one another. Knowing and doing were not meant to be separated. And McLaren is absolutely right on that. Where I believe that he's wrong according to Scripture, is what he identifies as the solution. Listen to what he goes on to say. He talks about a, a Roman Catholic priest, uh, Vincent Donovan, working among the Maasai. And, he, and this priest says this, uh, theology that doesn't take experience into account is a dead and useless thing. Practice must be prior to theology, the priest says. In my work, in my work, theology would have to proceed from practice to theory. In other words, do first and then know, and McLaren agrees. He says this, I've, this is McLaren speaking. McLaren says, I have become convinced that a generous orthodoxy appropriate for our postmodern world will have to grow out of the experience of the post-Christian, post-secular people of the cities 
of the 21st century. You see what he's saying? Do things and then let that affect your theology. Find out what this postmodern world is like and then come to understand God. That is a wrong understanding of how Scripture presents the relationship between knowing and doing. That's why, first of all, how do you handle doctrine? First of all, you have to know and be convinced of the truth. Apart from good, solid doctrine, you always, always end up in poor living. If you have poor knowledge, poor doctrine, it's going to result in poor living. Look at Judges, let me just read to you Judges chapter 2. In Judges chapter 2, uh, the, remember the people have come in the book of Joshua, they've conquered in the, in the promised land. In verse 10, we see that Joshua passes away. Verse 10 says, and all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Okay, so they die. These people that came in and did amazing things in God's name in the, in the promised land, they die. Verse 10 says, and there arose another generation after them. This next generation comes up. Listen to this, some of the most tragic words in all of Scripture. This next generation came after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done in Israel. What do they not know? Doctrine. Who God is. What he wants them to do. What's the result? Well, the inevitable result, verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. They served the false idols. What happens when you're not, you don't know and you aren't convinced of the truth? You can't live out the truth. Orthodoxy must lead to orthopraxy. Knowledge must leave, lead to living. But you can't live until you first know. Know and be convinced of the truth. Let me give you a couple applications here as we think about this first principle. The first application would be this. Be proactive. Be proactive in seeking the truth and studying it personally. The psalmist in Psalm 119 says, Blessed are those who keep God's testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Firstly, be proactive in seeking truth and studying it personally. Secondly, secondly, be careful of the counsel of fools. Be careful of the counsel of foolish people. Remember what the psalmist says in the first psalm as he's talking about the difference between the wise and the, the wicked person. In Psalm chapter 1, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is what? It's in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The wise person is the person who goes to God's word, and instead of following after foolish people and foolish people's counsel, tries to understand what God's desire for him is. Uh, Proverbs 12, verse 5 says this, The thoughts of the righteous are just, the counsels of the wicked are deceitful. The counsels of the wicked are deceitful. If you're going to know and be convinced of the truth, it's important that you be careful about the counsel of foolish people. Very often, we surround ourselves with people who don't think rightly about the world around them. Earlier in 
Christian history, and this happens uh, some uh, today as well, but uh, we had more of a, if you look at kind of our, some of our, our, our forefathers in the faith and the, the American uh, Christian culture, evangelical culture, there were more fundamentalists among us. And sometimes the fundamentalism took some, some strange uh, turns and twists, and there are times where fundamentalists would get together for, for book burnings and burn CDs and burn uh, anything, or I guess videotapes or eight tracks. What, you guys help me out here. Um, burn books and, and things like that because they, they were concerned about culture's influence in the lives of their children. Record, records are what they're called. Um, vinyl record. Anyway, they were concerned about those things and the influence in their lives of their children. Now, I don't advocate book burning. I would appreciate it if you didn't come into my house and start seeing what sort of secular CDs or movies I have and take them out to be burned. I would appreciate it if you did not do that. But at the same time, what people rightly understood is that there is a real danger in immersing yourselves in the thought patterns of this world. There was a young man I, I was talking with recently who, was, who, was, who had made a commitment, who made a profession of faith in Christ and said, look, I'm, I'm struggling, though, because I... I, I think some very uh, dark thoughts sometimes, and I'm very enamored with kind of a dark worldview, and I, I, I said, don't indulge that. You're suffering the, the counsel of foolish people, and the more you immerse yourself in it, the wiser it's going to seem. Be, be aware of that. Immerse yourself in, in God's teaching, really study God's word, allow the light to shine in your life, and, and, and become convinced of the truth. And he, he chose not to immerse himself in a very dark worldview. And what was the inevitable result? He didn't know and wasn't convinced of the truth. Be careful of the counsel of fools. Another application here, another application would be to be immersed in sound teaching, the exact opposite. Be immersed in, in sound teaching, and then fourthly, of course, then be committed to, to holding fast to sound teaching. So, uh, firstly, how do we handle doctrine? We don't want to become arrogant. We don't want to become uh, we don't undervalue it. Firstly, we want to know and be convinced of the truth. Secondly, then, secondly, we want to live out the truth. Live out the truth. Look at verse 16. Verse 16, Jesus says this, No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, what's Jesus talking about here? Is he just talking about evangelism? I don't think so. Think about the context of what he's talking about. He's talking about his teaching, how a person hears and responds rightly to his teaching. Jesus' teaching is the light in this verse. And it'd be a very foolish thing to take Jesus' teaching and just kind of put it away in some corner, to, to stick it underneath a, a couch or a bed or to, to hide it under a bushel. No, you let it shine. He says, you, you take this teaching of his, and you put it on display. The purpose of lighting a lamp is so that it could be displayed. You want to, to live it out. That's its purpose. Look at verse 17. Verse 17, Jesus says this, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. I, I believe what he's talking about there, he's referring back to what he said in verse 10 of Luke chapter 8. Remember, in between giving the parable out and explaining the parable. He talked a little bit about some secrets that were going to take place. Verse 10, he says, uh, To you has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables. Now, are these secrets going to stay hidden? No. As believers take the truth of God's word and hold it fast and know it, 
the inevitable result is that light is going to shine in their lives. There's going to be a noticeable difference about the way that they act, about the way that they think, about the way that they live. They're going to live out this truth. Truth has been entrusted to these people, to Jesus' followers, so that it would become evident. The goal is not that it be stay hidden, but as the believers take this truth, this doctrine, and put it into their lives, that it results in fruit. It's hard to conceal who you truly are. And this good heart, this good soil, is going to produce fruit in accordance with what's been planted in it. If Jesus' teaching is planted in the human heart, it bears fruit. The analogy that he goes on to present is it, it's like a, a lamp shining in a dark place. You don't hide a lamp. The purpose of lighting a lamp is so that others can see what's taking place with light. When I was uh, applying to, to Dallas Seminary, one of the things that I started off at Dallas Seminary and finished at Moody, but one of the things that they asked us to do was to take a, a psychological profile which obviously frightened me for many, many reasons. I said, I, I, you know, I, I don't, and then they said this too. They said, if we, if we see that there's some issues that you have, and they kind of listed a couple things like, you know, uh, you struggle with lying or deception or, uh, you know, you're too driven or whatever, introverted, and then we're going to ask you to come in for counseling. <laughs> well, I didn't want to come in for counseling, and I knew. I said, I, I know I'm a pretty driven person. I know that I struggle with, with being a little bit of an introverted so, person, so I'm going to read these, uh, read these answers, read these questions, and I'm not go- I don't want to lie. I don't want to be dishonest, but I'm going to be as, as, uh, as, as careful as I can. I'm not going to express the full force of my opinion on some of these questions. And so they'd, you know, they ask questions about how, you, how driven are you, how introverted are you, things like that. And I, I answered the questions, but instead of like putting, if it was a scale of 1 to 10, instead of putting a 10, I'd put like a 7, okay, and, or a 6. And the, the test came back, right? They nailed me, okay? Please come in for counseling. Um, we recognize that uh, while some of your skills can be beneficial in ministry, being as driven and as introverted as you can be a real detriment. And uh, I was too shy to come in, so I didn't. But that's why I transferred, actually. No, it, that wasn't. But the, the point is this. Uh, it, it's hard to hide who you truly are, right? It's hard to hide who you truly are. And some of you c- can do a good job over a period of time, but, but eventually who you are comes to light. For the believer, that should be a good thing. God's word should take place and take root in the heart of the believer in such a way that as a person really delves deeply into your life, who do they see? They see Christ. As you've come to know him more fully, his, his teaching is impacting your life, and as you begin to know him more fully, you, you live out who you truly are, which is a follower of Jesus Christ. Live out the truth. You can't conceal who you truly are. If you're a person who's truly come to understand what God has done for you through the gospel, that should affect how you treat other people. If you're a person who truly understands, say, for example, the doctrine of of predestination, how God looked from eternity past and, and sovereignly worked out your salvation, that should influence you practically with humility, not arrogance. 
live out the truth. Thirdly, third way to handle properly doctrine is to take care of the truth. Take care of the truth. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. He says, take care then how you hear. Be be careful how you, you listen and live out what I've told you to do. Take care of the truth. Take care of how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks he has will be taken away. The, the key phrase of this verse, I think, is, is, verse eight, is the first part of verse 18. Take can, care then how you hear. He's explaining what he's talking about. He's, exp- he's talking about how a person listens to his word. Be careful of what I've entrusted to you. Be careful of this doctrinal truth, this teaching about who I am. Be a good steward of it. Because there's a reward for those who live it out properly, who hear it properly, who know it, and then do it. And the reward, according to verse 18, is that the one who has, who listens to God's truth and applies it, more will be given to that person. And for the person who treats God's word very foolishly, even that which he thinks he has, this false knowledge about God, he'll, he'll take, God will even take that away. He'll realize that he understood God wrongly. That's a sad thing to have happen, right? How sad would it be to get into eternity and think you know all these things about God and and realize you knew nothing? God says, look, if you had known who I was, if you had truly understood my character, it would have been lived out in your life. You say you understand who I am. You say you understand that I own the the cattle on a thousand hills, but I I look at the way you, you treated the people who were needy in your life. You didn't know me. You say you understand what it means to have a heavenly father. You say you understand the gospel. You say you understand what it means to come into a relationship with me. Look at how you treated the people who were in relationship with you. You didn't love the brothers. You didn't know me. Take care of the truth that you've been entrusted with. And the person, this is the amazing thing, guys. The person who receives God's truth and hears it rightly gets more of it. The reward for a believer in following after God is more God. Psalm 119 again. In Psalm 119, verse 127, the psalmist says, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Why? Because in the commandments is life and knowledge of God himself. The person who seeks out God, who comes, who knows and is convinced of the truth and then lives out the truth and is a good steward of the truth, receives more truth, receives greater knowledge of God and of his desire for their lives. Understand this. Understand that you and I are very culpable for how we respond to God's truth. We're culpable for the truth that God has entrusted to us. We're stewards of it. Therefore, we need to be very careful with what we do with it. We need to be careful, first of all, how we treat it and we learn it, right? For example, on Sunday morning, as God's truth is proclaimed in Sunday school classes, 
how are you being careful with it and taking care that you hear in the right way? Are you taking the things that your Sunday school teachers say and, and comparing them with, with Scripture and, and trying to understand more fully exactly what it is that they're saying? Whenever you come in here and we, we worship God together through singing, are you making sure that as you're, you're singing, you're reflecting the, the true character of who God is? Meditating upon the lyrics and, and, and the words of the song and having your heart respond, uh, worshiping God in, in truth and in spirit? As we listen to God's word together, as we come to God, the text, and we study it together in the mornings, are you being careful with God's word? Are you making sure that you understand accurately what God's word is saying? Or if you're a person that it helps to take notes, or are you taking notes and saying, I take what God's word says very seriously and soberly. And I'm going to take the things that, that Daniel talks about, and I'm going to, to test them against Scripture and make sure that, that what he's saying is, is what the text says. And be careful and sober with God's word. Do you begin worshiping God Saturday night? Very often, my dad would say that expression to me, uh, you know, hey, you know, just understand, Daniel, you begin worshiping Sunday morning on Saturday night. And does your Saturday night and your Sunday morning help you in such a way that as you come in and, and hear God's word corporately that you're prepared to do so, that you've gotten the rest that you need, that things are okay between you and your spouse or you and your siblings or you and your parents so that you can rightly listen to God's word, that your heart is rightly prepared. And we've been talking about parenting in our Sunday school classes, the adult Sunday school classes, and parents, are, are you accurately and, and carefully handling the truth that God has entrusted to you? God has entrusted you with, with his word and, and called you to be careful with it and entrusted in the lives of your children. Are you doing that? Are you being a faithful steward on a, on a nightly basis or a, a daily basis to say, you know what, this, uh, my children, my beloved children who love me so much, uh, this is as valuable to you as the food that we eat in the morning and the afternoon and the evening. God's word, food for our souls. Are you taking care with the truth? Jesus says, take care then how you hear. Be careful how you hear. The one who has, who hears rightly and applies the word, receives more. And the one, the one to whom is not faithful with God's word, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Well, then we come to the last principle of how to handle God's word how to handle doctrine from this text. That's this, uh, pursue the author of the truth. Pursue the author of truth. Listen to this, this next story that Luke includes here with all these other stories about hearing God's word. It says in verse 19, then his mother and his brothers came to him, and from other passages in scripture, for example, the, the gospel of Luke, we understand that it seems that Jesus' mother and brothers were concerned about Jesus' well-being, they thought maybe he's even a little bit crazy here. And so his mother and brothers were, were coming to, to perhaps even remove him from ministry. They weren't hearing his words and, and believing them, responding in, in truth, uh, responding to the truth the way that they should have. Verse 20, he's told, your mother and your brothers are staying outside desiring to see you. Verse 21, but he answered them, listen to this, my mother and my brothers are those, once again, who hear the word of God, who hear the word of God and 
do it. The people who should have been able to approach Jesus, his mother and brothers, how are you going to deny his mother and brothers the opportunity to see him? They get left out. And, for, and the people who you would think would not be the closest to him relationally are, and the reason that they're the closest to him relationally is because they hear his teaching and then they live it out. They don't just hear what he's saying, but they have a commitment to do it. Those, he says, who are truly my family are those who hear the word of God and do it. Do you want God? Do you want Jesus? I tell you the truth, it is not enough to know a lot of things intellectually about who he is. Now, don't get me wrong, if you don't know who he is, and you say, I'm just, I'm just trying to love Jesus, you're practicing idolatry. You have to know the truth. You have to, to know who he is. You have to come to his word and see what he's revealed about himself. But I tell you this also, if you simply know a lot of things about Jesus and it's not impacting how you live, you do not know him. As you seek knowledge about God, you must be seeking God himself in the place that he tells you to find the information about himself, his word. I may have shared this with you before, I, I can't honestly remember, but one of the kind of the neat things that's happening in my life right now is my, my boys are at an age, especially the boys are at an age where they, they love hanging out with dad. They love hanging out with dad. Noah's big phrase right now, when we ask him, you know, do you want to go here, here, he goes, where's dad going? Where's dad going? I want to be dad. Austin, on Sunday mornings, used to, I, I used to, uh, I'd get up Sunday mornings and I'd, I'd get ready to leave and I'd notice that he would, he'd be up and he'd say, hey dad, can I go with you? And sometimes I'd say yes and sometimes I'd say, well, I kind of have a lot going on this morning. I need to kind of take care of some things, so not this morning, okay? I'd say, okay, dad. Well, then about, about four or five weeks of that happens. Sometimes I say yes, sometimes I say no. And I, the the fifth, fifth or sixth week, I realized what's going on. I found out that Saturday night, my little seven-year-old boy was setting his alarm clock about 15 or 20 minutes before his mom would come in and wake him up. He was setting his alarm clock so he could wake up. He was waking up. He was eating breakfast. He was brushing his teeth. He was finding clothes and putting them on so that he could stand by the door and just be ready. Dad, can I go with you? Oh, not this morning, son. Didn't even know what he was doing. But his heart desired to be with his dad. Because he desired to be with his dad, he was willing to be at the places that his dad was going to be to spend that time with him. If you desire to know God, be at the place where God is. Go to his word. If you desire to know who God is, you must know who he is and live that knowledge out. God is passionate. God is passionate that his people would know him for his glory. Be careful of idolatry. This evening as we get together at Camp Good News, we're going to be talking through the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, we're going to see over and over again, God, God calls his people not to, to practice idolatry, but to know his commandments, to know him, and to live them out in the land. That's what we're to do. We're to go to his word, we're to know who he is, we're to pursue him, the author of truth, and then live that out.
orthodoxy, knowledge of God, must lead to orthopraxy, practice of that knowledge. I want to close with this, these words from J.I. Packer from his book, Knowing God. Uh, Packer says this, Our aim in studying the Godhead must be to know God himself better. Our concern must be to enlarge our acquaintance, not simply with the doctrine of God's attributes, but with the living God whose attributes they are. As he is the subject of our study and our helper in it, so he himself must be the end of it. We must seek in studying God to be led to God. It was for this purpose that revelation was given, that we might know God himself. We come into relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, recognizing our need for His forgiveness because of our sin. We place our, our faith in Jesus Christ and have confidence based upon God's revelation that we're into relationship with God, and then we continue, then we continue to grow deep in our understanding of who God is as believers. As those who are represented by the good soil, we know we become convinced of God's truth as found in his word. We live out that truth in our lives. We take care of that truth as we entrust it to other people. And as we do that, we are pursuing the author of the truth who gives us the truth and gives us the ability through his spirit to live it out. Let's pray. And Father, we, we do thank you for your revelation, your word to us. We pray that we be careful how we hear it. We pray that as we're careful to how we hear it, you would give us the grace to apply it in our lives. And we pray this, not for our own glory, for your great glory. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.